And that was Pete Seeger with the Garden Song as a homage to today's show. My name is Rita Catoni and you're listening to Kitchen Radio on 8CCC 102.1 FM in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek and via the internet. Today's guest is a self-described farmer and garden enthusiast. Kim Mackay has lived in Alice Springs for the past five years and is a shareholder of the local date farm and a key contributor to the Alice Springs Community Garden. Uh, Kim spends most of his time at the date farm where... Yeah, that's right. Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Where he oversees a crew of workers and volunteers as well as a great veggie patch. Each night he cooks for between 6 to 15 people, usually out of the vegetable garden at the date farm. You cook for vegetarians, vegans and the occasional meat eater. That's right. (laughs) Kim's knowledge of gardening and compost is wide-ranging and it's one of the factors that links um, his many jobs from Exmouth and WA, where he grew up, um, to the Blue Mountains, to the Kimberley and here to Alice Springs. Now, while most market gardens have come and gone here in Alice Springs, although I do believe the Happy Farmers still around, the community garden has really thrived, Kim. I've got to say, it's, it really it has, has r- yeah. from the get go. And people just stick around for years and years, like people like you and Bruce and a handful, a bunch of other. It's more like a handful. It's I a, think. it's a handful. Like we would love our members to all come and give us a few more hours a year than they do already. So a call out to any members of the community garden. We'd love to see you down there on uh, Sunday mornings for the working bees and um, uh, Wednesday afternoons as well. Yeah, it is always good to see new old faces or old new faces come and join in with us. So we can always do with a hand. I did have a plot there for a while, but um, I just couldn't get myself there to the working bees because I've got a big garden at home. So (laughs) I think I just, in the end, decided I'd better just put my energy into my garden at home. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I do spend a lot of time at the community garden I, and it, when I first came here I thought I'd get a plot but then I didn't need to because I had a place I could grow it and probably better to leave that for people who maybe live in apartments or yeah, places yeah, like that and they don't have the opportunity to garden. Yeah, the community garden's a, a great attractor. Though I must say I haven't been there a lot since we've been doing our uh, date harvest which takes up all my time. But now that that's over, probably most Wednesdays I'll be at the... Wednesday afternoons I'll be back at the community garden doing things. So come down on Wednesday afternoon for uh, a working bee if you think you'd like to stretch your muscles and uh, get a bit of <laughs> And ex- get behind some exercise. wheelbarrows. And look, the other great thing about volunteering at the community garden, which I like, is that just your wealth of knowledge. You know, I've often gone to you and I've having problems with my... You know, whether it was my plot or my home garden and you've got amazing insights into into how to grow gardens, how to grow edible gardens in the desert. Yeah, I've had a lot of experience in the desert, but also in the mountains and on the coast and uh, many different places around Australia. I haven't grown much in a subtropical zone, but I certainly have in tropical and very cold and now very hot. So obviously for those listeners out there who are wondering where we're going with this, well, today we're chatting with Kim about gardening here in Central Australia, about the community garden and the date farm. And stick around because we'll have some recipes coming up later on with some dates. So Kim, how do you find yourself here in Alice Springs? Alice Springs has always been on my bucket list as a place I would like to go or perhaps live most of my life. And anyway, I was working at Marble Bar coordinator of a community resale centre and it was a a, a great job. Got to get involved in the community and in the school. We had gardens going. We had our own little community garden behind the community resource centre and we had some gardens going at the school. So I got to get out and about in amongst the community quite a lot. Moved from there to Alice Springs. So uh, I had a friend, a dear friend, my best friend, 
uh, became paraplegic. And uh, even though I loved my job, I was somebody in a small town and I loved it there and I, I still maintain my contact there. But uh, I felt I needed to come and help my friend who didn't have family about to be able to help him after he became paraplegic. So I moved from uh, Marble Bar to Alice Springs. But it soon became evident that he didn't really need the intensive care, which was fantastic for him and for all of us. Soon able to be able to drive again and be ambulating uh, with crutches and uh, and or a wheelchair. And so I moved on a little bit from there when, I re- when we both realised he, he didn't need that intensive help. And I moved along eventually to the date farm, but via the community garden. So when I was first here, I, I thought I really needed to do something during the day, had plenty of energy. So another friend, a mutual friend from the Pilbara also had moved to Alice Springs, uh, took me down one Friday afternoon and introduced me to the community garden. I soon joined and spent most of my time down there helping Ben Wall when he was working with uh, Tungajira, putting up all the beautiful papercrete and yeah. the um, earth bag walls and so on. And that, you know, one of the reasons it looks so magnificent is because of all Ben's hard work and the work for the doll group that were working there as well. So I was looking for work, but Ben suggested I come out to the date farm and do some work out there, which I started doing on the weekends. And it was really good work. I enjoyed it. And soon enough, there was an offer to me to join the co-op. I was offered some training, elevated work platform training, so that we can use our mobile cherry pickers. And probably within two months of being there, I had that and I was soon working in the trees with the dates directly, instead of just you know working around the ground and plant uh, things like uh, lucerne and, and clover and that to help increase uh, nitrogen levels and so on. We are a, a biological-based growing system, so I guess you could say organic, uh, but we do use mixes of bacteria and fungal mycorrhizal mixtures that we put out in the fertigation systems out to the palms as well to ha- yeah. get the bacteria to help us along. So, yeah, that's how I came to be at the, the date farm within a few weeks of uh, uh, arriving in Alice Springs. And how did you get into gardening? My dad was a keen gardener and also one of my uncles, my mum's brothers, was a keen gardener. So I was, from a young age, was around plants and gardening and potting things up and vegetables. And I remember as a child, our um, uncle had a vast pumpkin patch and he had to spend quite a bit of time hand pollinating as we do here too because the bees don't always do it by taking the male flower and, and rubbing it on the, the, the female um, receptacles to in order to get a pollination. And he showed us kids, and, gee, he never had to do it again. We saw a little bit of, um, uh, I suppose, rudeness in there in, in, a, in a sort of sexual sort of a way. And, and of course, we all fought over each over the pumpkins to pollinate them. So my uncle walked off giggling, oh, no, chortling to himself, and that was a job he didn't have to do anymore. Yeah, from most of my life I've been around gardens, though I must say it wasn't until my early adulthood that I started doing my own vegetable gardens, wherever I was. And were most of the gardens that you were like exposed to in fairly, I suppose, inhospitable places? Yes. I mean, my uncle, my father lived in Perth, so it was reasonably uh, mild down there. Uh, But one of my uncles, when our family moved to Exmouth in the uh, mid-60s, he was always growing things in the hard, what we call pindan, the same red dirt we get here. In WA, it's called Pindan for some reason. Mm. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, so it has a name, but I think it was the same sort of dirt. It's probably a little bit different, but so not a lot of nutrition in the soil, not a lot of minerals or you know anything much. So you have to add everything, of course, and lots of water, which is the key to growing 
growing good veggies because you can't make your veggies go without water. You can't treat them like natives where you get them going and then you just don't, you know, you water once a week and then it's once a month and then you might may not ne- ever water again with natives once they're established. Uh, but definitely you can't train your vegetables to go without water. They definitely have to have their water. That's the only way you're going to get a really good, uh, a good garden in the end. You can't restrict the water. Even though we're all about being careful about water, well, you just can't do that with vegetables. <laughs> yeah. Maybe except maybe a prickly pear or something yeah, like something that. Like that. Yeah, something like that. Aloe vera. Agave. And, and you've always been, I suppose, interested in edible gardens? My, yeah, edible gardens. I'm, I'm interested in natives, but generally most of my knowledge is around edibles or useful native plants. And how many gardens do you think you've created in your Gee, lifetime? Dozens. I couldn't put a number to them. Is there anywhere you've lived that you've not created a garden? No, I always have something, even if it's just in styrofoam boxes. I, I taught on Aboriginal communities in the 80s and I always set up either a garden there because there's usually cattle yards nearby to get fertiliser and or styrofoam boxes or tubs of some sort, but most of the time it's directly in the ground. I love growing in the ground. Really? Yeah, I just love growing in the ground. For me, it's a lot less work than, say, wicking beds, which are great, or raised beds, which are yeah, relatively easy, cause, but you do need to have enough bulk material to fill them with. But generally, I prefer to grow in the soil. At home, wicking beds seem to be the only way I can have success in my um, vegetable garden. I think, especially in the older parts of town, the soil's relatively alkaline, and I think that is due to the fact that we have a slightly alkaline water. It's the same at the date farm. Mm -hmm. Over 30 years, let me just go to the soil at the date farm. It is red Simpson um, desert soil. It's neutral. So if you just go off into the bush a little bit and test the pH, it's around 7. But if you go and test the pH around the trees where they've been having, say, 7.2 to 7.4 pH water on them for 30 years, the pH is around 9. So it's compounded. It's hugely, highly alkaline. And although it's not a real problem for the dates because they have evolved around limestone springs and oases and so on so the soil is around limestone is always alkaline and so I think they've evolved to handle alkaline soils it's just other things that don't like it too alkaline like our usual veggies most things prefer around around neutral to grow so something we do have to watch one way of doing that is adding tons of uh, uh, organic matter to the soil encouraging your earthworms encouraging your soil life uh, whether it's the macro you know the little critters like Slaters, which people tend not to like, but they're good little oh, detritus they good? eaters. They actually accumulate heavy metals within themselves, but they're, they're good little... Even like cockroaches in your compost, people reel back from seeing the slaters and the cockroaches. They do a great job. What about slugs? Slugs depends on the slugs. Yeah, I've got some, a lot of slugs in my little worm farm. Some slugs are detritus eaters. In fact, most of them are. But yeah. Some also eat living plants. Some snails eat living plants. But most of them tend to eat detritus just like those big cockroaches you see they're you know they're not such thing as a house cockroach they've all evolved in nature but they do like the leaves and the broken down matter and so on because that's their natural food Uh, so if you do find them in your composter certainly don't spray them (laughs) because it will no longer be organic and you could damage your worms but just it's okay. I just throw them out, but should I? No, are the slugs back. okay? Put them back. Okay. The slugs, they're just breaking down the organic matter in there. They're not a problem. And their poo's fine for their the garden? Their poo's fine, yeah. Okay, great. The poo's I'm out. Glad I mean, I that's asked. how, when you think about the bush, where does their fertiliser come from? Yeah. From all the insects and the birds pooping from the tree. I mean, that's all they get. So, in terms of all the gardens that you've created, do you keep track of them? Or do you ever, you know, does anybody send you photos of no, gardens I, I, you've I put in? I suspect most of them drop dead as soon as I left. <laughs> 
but that does happen and you do have to you can't hold on to your gardens you don't know who's going to be in that rental next or who's going to be involved in the community you've been working on I had horticultural skills so I did like to always put gardens in and, and organize training for it was a CDEP in those days uh, in areas of horticulture and though the next person who comes might be just a welder who does that job and may not be interested at all in the garden so it will more than likely go by the wayside if there isn't someone there who's always going at it. And when you've put in these edible gardens, are you harvesting the food and cooking with it or are you giving it away or all of the above? All of the above. Yeah. Of course, it's to have fresh fresh uh, food, especially on, a, on the remote communities because uh, these days the shops are pretty good and you can get most you know, fresh vegetables. You can get everything just about now. But in the 80s and so on, it was a bit sadder. You could pay $16 for a, you know, a, a kilo for some capsicums that had black mould spots on them, stuff <laughs> like that. So growing your own was always a way to ensure your fresh vegetables, but it's always, because I was a school teacher, a wonderful way to get kids involved in a, uh, all kinds of things, apart from the fun of gardening and eating them, like cooking classes, there's an amazing amount of mathematics you can get from growing vegetables in, you know, for instance, measuring how much they're growing each week and making graphs and, and that kind of thing. All kinds of stories. In those days, uh, we used to take photos and then, you know, two weeks later you get them back and you'd make a little book because I generally taught little kids you know, a photo to a page and they get to decide what, you know, was on there and write that and we'd bind them and that was the reading books, which the kids loved to pick. When you said pick a book to read, they'd pick their own books <laughs> nearly always. And a funny, just a funny little aside, they often had photos. By the end of the year, none of the faces had faces because the kids would go open them and go say everybody's name and touch their face as they said their name by the end of the year there was just a like a worn out spot where the faces used to <laughs> but everyone knew who they were <laughs> in terms of your vegetable gardens do you have a favorite vegetable that you put in or that you like to cook wherever you are oh look but if i could take one plant with me to a new place i would take an aloe vera because you can eat it and it, grows and it grows everywhere, well. yeah. Great for burns, great for upset stomachs. You can put it in your eyes. I cleared up conjunctivitis when I was travelling through India in two days. I'd had it for nine, stuck together, horrible, stuck together eyes. And I put aloe vera in in two days, it cleared it. Some people might go, oh, why would you put it in your eyes? But um, I did read a book once saying you could do that. So that's what I did. And it worked really well. It's just an amazing plant. But my favourite food plant, I guess... Parsley, because you can do so much with it, so nutritious and it's easy to grow. Yeah, it's it's actually the one thing I can always grow is parsley. And, yeah. and you can always use parsley in almost every meal. Yeah, and you can also actually do quite a lot with the stalks as well. Like stalks have a lot of flavour as oh, well. Sure, you chop them up into your salads. Because it's the same family as celery, isn't it? Uh, the Apiaceae family, yeah. So, or this is called Umbelliferaceae family because the flowers look like an umbrella. So, yeah, things like yeah, carrots parsley, dill, fennel, what are some of the other ones, uh, celery. Yeah, there's a whole lot that are in that family. Yeah, I like them all. Although I did grow celery here one year at the community garden and the flavour was so strong I actually couldn't eat it. Yeah, they do get some varieties are strong and I, I wonder sometimes if it's maybe the heat. But they do tend to go to flower in the spring so it's not yeah. always easy to keep them going through the summer though. I think if you planted them fairly late you can get some through the summer. I have some perennial ones and they set seed everywhere all the time, I, almost like a weed. So, you know, you might not always want a thousand celery plants. So they just get uh, dug in 
as green manure where they where they spread. But sometimes there is a, I have seen it, and I think it's maybe lack of water. Sometimes uh, on the inner part of the curve, if you run your nail up the middle, it's like paper and it's sort of hollow. Now I'm not sure. I haven't worked out if that's a variety or if it's something to do with not getting enough water. I suspect they're not enough water, but it's still good for cooking and stews and soups and things like that, even if you do get one go like that. It's just not a nice, crunchy piece of celery. Like yeah. You want when so you can still use it. but You can still use it, yeah. Listeners, if your uh, <laughs> celery goes all a bit papery. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. You can still cook with it. How important is it for you to be able to cook out of your garden? Uh, it's almost vital now, I suppose. It's the only one way you can control some aspect of your food intake. You know what you put on it. You know what you've grown it with. You know the water. You know whether or not you might have sprayed it. I do have to admit to occasionally using pyrethrum when I get infestations of, particularly now that the aphids are coming out. It does work well with them and it breaks down in a day in the sunlight, so it's not a problem for bees, though it is important to spray in the evening while they're not active and allow it to work overnight so that when the sun gets on it in the morning, it's not a problem for our honeybees. Okay. And it's natural, is it not pyrethrum? It's from the pyrethrum daisy. So uh, there are a lot of pyrethroids, which are the synthetic ones, so it's preferable not to use those, but to use pyrethrum. You can buy it as a, as a, a concentrate and water it down. But I, do, I don't use it willy-nilly because it does kill everything. Mm-hmm. So I target it mainly for the aphids when I still want to get a bit more out of my brassicas before they finish. Yeah. I've got nothing out of my brassicas I think I showed you last week. So um, in terms of cooking, what is your cooking style? It's pretty freehand. I sort of look at what I've got and I'll make something from that. Like I tend not to follow recipes unless I think I want to make something different and I'll have a quick look at a recipe and see how it goes and what the ingredients might be and then do something based loosely around that with what I have. But I do lose a lot of vegetables. Uh, I do eat meat as well. But I'm currently cooking for a, a vegan and a vegetarian and some omnivores. We're only six people at the moment out at the farm, so it's a lot easier. I use tons of vegetables in my meals. I, I'm never one for beef and celery, something or other, because it's you can plant, put a whole lot more in there <laughs> than celery. Uh, so most of my vegetables, I could have up to 10 or 12 different vegetables in any dish. Only because they're there. And are you cooking like an Asian style um, food here? All styles. You know, I I like Asian. I love curries. You know, I do. I like Mexican food, tomato-based Italian. I like French cooking. All kinds of things I'll make. It just depends on my whim. I might even get my some of my ingredients out, and and I've turned the pan on, and it's heating for the onions. I still haven't decided what I'm going to make. Oh, that's exciting! So I'll go. All right, if I chuck. Some ginger in now. Well, it's going to be Asian. Yeah, yeah, you're heading in one particular direction, aren't you? You can't go, oh, well, actually, let's do Italian. It could be any number of European dishes or Mexican or something like that. So sometimes it really is on a whim. And, yeah, I just cook from the heart, I suppose, what I feel like cooking. And are you the main cook out there? I'm the main cook. Others can cook. Um, (laughs) You mean you let them in the kitchen? (laughs) Others can cook, but most people can't cook for large... uh, 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 large groups so you know if it's uh, three or four people almost anybody can hash up a meal but once it gets up around 10 to 12 or more it's just that little bit harder to have it all coming off at the same time and you know something for everybody and have you ever cooked professionally uh yes to a degree um i have no actual training but uh 
I had a restaurant with my two brothers and sister in Exmouth on the west coast, northwest Cape, where Ningaloo Reef is. People might know it because of Ningaloo Reef, where the whale sharks swim, and it's beautiful, wonderful coastal access to the to the reefs. But uh, we had a seafood restaurant. Now the town is a tourist town. It was originally a US military base. It sort of still has that, uh, you know, um, military towers out on the Cape, and I think they still use them, even though satellites have taken all that over now. But uh, it is a fishing town, so Kalis Fisheries is there. There's all kinds of fisheries. I think the only two fisheries that aren't there are rock lobster and scallops. We got those from the next town down at Carnarvon, and we never had lobster on the, the menu because there wasn't a fishery there, but you could get the squid and all the kinds of prawns, all kinds of different fish from deep sea fish and tuna and swordfish, mahi-mahi. So this is all fresh fish. fish? All fresh fish, which I would receive each day spend three hours filleting so it couldn't get fresher, and then serve it up that night. And what was the menu style? Menu style at first was a, a very large menu, a very eclectic, wide-ranging menu. But we soon realised that when you have a very large menu, you have to prep everything. You can't think, oh, well, we won't do that tonight because it's on the menu. So you have to prep everything. And you may not use something, so you do get a lot of wastage. You may not have some sales at night of certain things. And so then you have a certain amount of wastage, which we decided in the end to eliminate that. We'd reduce the menu to about 15 items and it made it much easier as far as, as, far as preparation goes and less wastage. So let me say it was seafood of all kinds, even from your regular fish and chip, fried fish and chips through to all kinds of grilled fish and fish curries and Thai fish cakes, which we made pretty much from the offcuts of all the fish because you get lots of little offcuts that aren't a serving size. And uh, if they were decent fish bits as opposed to, the say, the red bits down the, the middle of the fillet. They can be made into kids, you know, kids' fish and chips. And all the other offcuts were minced up and made into fish balls or something like that. So given that you, you know, I suppose created this restaurant with your siblings, would I be right to assume that food was important in your family? Oh, yeah, I think so, always. Because of Dad and our uncles, there was all, because of always the, the, the fresh fruit and vegetables around. But we all were aficionados of food Usually quite basic, wholesome food rather than anything too fancy. So a lot of fresh and raw, a lot of salads, of course. And, of course, when we had the fish at the restaurant, we never needed to. We ate at the restaurant yep. most of the time. And sometimes you make a mistake, well, that becomes a meal for one of the staff, of the fa- staff or family <laughs> members. You don't throw it away. But, uh, yeah, just eating little bits and pieces. Often I, I think I was there for three years before I served myself up a plate of something. Oh, okay. So often it was just little bits, you know, a bit of this and a bit of that over the night and that was enough. So you would have grown up with a lot of seafood in the family home? Well, right from young too, because living in Exmouth and being a well-known fishing town, virtually everybody had a boat. My uncle was a... I did mention rock lobsters before and they are available in Exmouth, but my uncle, who has now passed away, he was a diver of rock lobsters and he had the only licensed in Australia to dive and gaff rock lobsters until he um, gave his licence up in his older age. And so we had fish many times. It was almost like, ugh, not lobster again, (laughs) sort of thing. That's how spoiled we were. (laughs) And what was your favourite dish on the menu or maybe your favourite dish that you like to cook? Uh, My simplest favourite dish, I think, was uh, one of the beautiful like gold snapper, ruby snapper, red emperor, one of those fillets. Uh, buttered and dipped into a dukkah and then and then grilled. Wow. I suppose that was probably my favourite dish. I mean, there was many dishes I liked that we made, 
uh, even through to the basic fish and chips, which was uh, Spanish mackerel. And at first when we had the locals would come, they go, oh, Spanish mackerel, we throw that back. And, of course, because you can get any number of beautiful fish to eat and you do have limits and so on, so people would throw the Spanish mackerel back and didn't consider it to be such a great eating fish, but I think it's magnificent, and especially as... Uh, as a basic fish and $8.50 fish and chips serve. Um, we soon had the locals all coming for it too because they, they'd spurned it without really knowing how good it was. So mahi-mahi, uh, sometimes we'd get a whole lot of mahi-mahi, which if people know them, they are a very expensive fish. They don't freeze, they don't transport well, and they need to be caught and eaten fresh. So the fishermen would catch a bunch of those, but they couldn't send them away with the regular freezable fish, so they'd come and give them sell them to us relatively cheap and uh, well for the same price as mackerel really so we're able to serve what would be a $40 serve of mahi mahi to somebody for $8.50 yeah. because uh, you had to be used really quick. And were you using produce from a vegetable garden as well? We had a veggie garden out the back but in the end there wasn't a lot of room so we concentrated on things like coriander which we used a lot, basil and some other like lettuce lettuce greens and things like that we used a lot of made a lot of salads uh, but it wasn't a big patch so in the end it just pretty much became coriander and basil which we wanted to have fresh all the time and what was the clientele was it a local clientele or a tourist clientele both but um mostly tourists where it's like alice springs it's lovely in the winter and quite hot in the summer so the tourists all leave so you need to rely on your uh, local clientele even though just about everybody had a boat and could go and fish themselves. Locals did come just, you know, if they didn't want to cook themselves or if they were having a party or an event, we did get the local clientele. Uh, but I'd say that in the tourist season, more tourists than, than locals yeah. because, of course, there's too many people for them so they stay home and eat their fish they caught themselves. <laughs> what happened to the restaurant in the end? Uh, in the end, we, we went for, like, almost four years and pretty much 16-hour days, hardly any days off. We didn't really draw a wage from it, so we, my brothers and sister and myself all went and had day, some daytime jobs and things like that just to <laughs> pay our phone bill. And Sounds like you know. a, a love job. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, um, yeah, it's, uh, we, all, we all spent a lot of time there. So, so we didn't send, we walked out of it in the end. We, we couldn't sell it. This location was okay, but it was it sometimes got missed because you just turned off the main road into town. It was the first place on the left, and it's reset in a little bit, so people could miss it the first time. So it wasn't always it wasn't in the best position. We just got known. So yeah, we we walked out of it in the end. We yeah. didn't sell it. Uh, we had no debt. We funded the whole thing ourselves. We didn't take any loans out or anything. So we were able to walk away from it. Uh, mainly because we just couldn't sell the restaurant. Yeah. It was the wrong time of the year, September, when the heat coming up. Nobody wants to buy a restaurant that uh, uh, uses fryers, that <laughs> use heaps of power and air conditioners that, you know, with less clients, less money coming in. I mean, some nights in the summer we'd take $30 of an evening. So, and you've still got to run all your air cons and your fryers mm. and all the power usage is high. So... The wintertime is what paid for us to keep going over the summer because the locals, and it's probably the same here, you don't take kindly to businesses that set up for the cream and then close over the, the hot period and then come back again for the cream the following year. The locals don't like it. And so they made that quite clear. We hope you're not going to be one of those that closes in the summer. We said we wouldn't be. 
We even opened on Christmas Day, even though we only had three people. <laughs> <laughs> and and what cooking skills did you take away from that experience? Oh, look, I had some skills to start with, just basic home cooking skills. But uh, the skills of chefs, uh, we had a number of chefs working for us um, from the beginning um, through to when we lost our final chef and we couldn't get another one and I had to do it <laughs> with great dread. But I managed quite all right because I had two years apprenticeship watching and observing and assisting and so on with the menu. So, yeah, I, I, it was a bit scary, but uh, then I, I took it in my stride and it became easier and it wasn't a problem at all. You know, what foundation did they give you, like, in terms of going forwards um, cooking-wise? Uh, it gave me a greater range of um, skills and um, ideas, recipes, things you could do, things the chefs would talk about that they didn't actually have on the menu but would talk about having made and, you know, you get the anecdotes. So, yeah, I was just immersed in it really because everybody was into the food, of yeah. course. And I suppose being able to cook for like larger numbers as well, I imagine that's oh, one yeah, of the Oh, yeah, yeah, that really helped with, yeah. Yeah, with the, the preparation and timing yes. especially. Yeah. Because you've got to be well prepared and your timing has to be impeccable so you don't want things coming out half an hour after, you know, for a table. Someone's got to wait for half an hour for their special dish. And you need everything out there together. And I can imagine with fish, like some fish cooks a lot quicker than other fish, but you want everything there. To come out at the same time. People want to eat together. That's the whole point. So I guess when you see your your tickets come up and your your orders come up, you're always looking back. You don't just wait for the next one. I guess any chef would say this because you will spot something back there that's going to take half an hour to make and think, all right, I'll start that now. And so by the time it progresses to the faster cooking things like the grilled fish and, say, some of the curries and that were already made or lasagna's already made, um, that just essentially just served onto a plate with some salad. Some things did take a bit longer to prepare. So, yeah, I mean, every chef Mm. has to learn that. Yep. timing and, and making sure they all come out around about the same time. Yeah, I've been reading Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential and it really sort of blew my mind how, how complex the process is in kitchens in terms of, you know... And everyone doing their jobs too yeah. to, to support you to make sure they all come out at that same at time. That same we always time, had yep. a great team. I don't, I don't think we ever sacked anybody. People, I don't know, we just attracted... Yeah. We're and all it, relaxed and easygoing and it was always fun, you know, we'd finish after work at nine and then we'd sit and, you know, socialise after work and maybe for an hour and then we'd go back and, like, mop the floors. <laughs> and and you always hard. And you still have a good relationship with your siblings? Oh, great relationship. <laughs> That's, they all live That's in amazing, WA. actually. And, um, yeah, it, 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 people said this is going to make you or break you yeah. as a family because we'd all lived in different parts of, a, of Western Australia oh, uh, uh, for a number of years and when Dad passed away, we sold his house and we thought, what are we going to do with this money? Should we, you know, we're we just going to share it and frisher it away on whatever. But we decided we would get the restaurant, use that money to get the restaurant going. We thought, Dad, pity he wasn't alive to see it, but he would love that we had all got together and done something as a family. And so I'm sure that, you know, that would have pleased him immensely. So, yeah, I was actually on my way to do a route, fritter my money on a, away on a round-the-world trip. And I, I popped into Exmouth on the way and I knew my siblings were doing this and they said, can you stay and help us for a little while? We, all right, you know, we've got to paint the building, we've got to get everything together, get it all ready. And then come to opening, they said, well, can you just stay a few more weeks? And um, we said, oh, all right. And meanwhile, my, oh, can you just put a f- few grand, you know, <laughs> into the... Okay, and, and then before I knew it, well, unfortunately, my two brothers had marital problems and the wives didn't like Exmouth. So it's either we leave and go south or you stay here by yourself. 
So the both brothers left with their family. So my sister and I ended up lumbered, we saw it at the time, with the restaurant. And we had no, both hadn't had really any intention of being so fully involved right from the start that we'd support it and we'd help and we'd put some money in and do all those things. But when the brothers left and it was already going for a few months, it was like, oh, we can't just like shut the door now. So we just kept it going ourselves. And then after two years, we said to our brothers, right, you've had two years, Grace. <laughs> it was your idea. <laughs> we think you should come back. And they did. The, the partners were okay with that. I don't, you know, who knows the, the, the re- real reason in the initial leaving. But, but they came back and they, and they assisted for the, until we decided really it's a lot of work for not a lot of money. It's great fun, but we can't run a business just for fun. Yeah, because the, the, the life the life after the restaurant closed, was it was a great venue. We had a beautiful garden with seat, you know, lovely shaded sort of like uh, picnic-type bench seats as well as you know, tables and, and, and stuff. So, and coloured lights, and we would often leave the music on. People could sit and have a drink well after they'd finished. I never kicked anybody out. Sometimes I'd think, all right, I'm just going to leave the music going quietly and lock the doors and I'm going to bed and have fun. <laughs> Uh, because it was outside. <laughs> what a fabulous story. Hey, we're going to just take a mid-show break. And when we come back, Kim, I'd love to hear all about the date farm. Now, Kim, you're one of these shareholders out at the Tamara... Uh, Tamara Date Farm. Tamara Date Farm. Yeah. Um, which is out on the Santa Teresa Road. That's right. Yep. Can you tell me how the date farm actually works? Well, I'll just go back quickly. 32 years ago, it was started by mm. Jim and Trudy Ludy. I'm not sure how long they, they started it and it took them a number of years uh, as a private business to, to get all the trees in and, and so on and to be able to attain freehold title over the place once the fences are in, the boars are in and the thousand trees were in. Then I think a lot of them worked like that where you claim then freehold title before that leasehold. So anyway, it did get sold to another fellow and then after a number of years he was trying to do it by himself. It was just too much. So he put it out there to attract a group of people that might want to start a co-op. And uh, Ben Wall was one of the, the um, key uh, people to start that out at the date farm. And so uh, Dave, who originally had the place and, and offered it to the, to the group for free at first, uh, and then they realised they really did need to have a, a fee. So everyone put in, I think initially it was like 10 grand each because you need some operating money capital to operate with so that was the initial one and that didn't quite work as well for the initial group so they closed it down and they started again Ben started again and the initial rest of the initial people left and then they started again oh of course Dave who originally had the place was still a member at that point as well but five or six years ago actually now that I arrived there he was had sold up his share and was leaving so the second main uh, person who had it as a business was gone and so it was about 12 or so years ago maybe a little bit longer that the co-ops took the first co-op and then the new one that we are running now got going and over the years have attracted probably about 16 or 17 people now there's 13 blocks available for for a, a, a member or a couple so some of those members are couples even though there's only 13 blocks Originally, it was to have access to land and also to run the farm and to run the date farm. So that was probably a big attractor for any new new potential members, the fact that there was already an existing date farm there. It was an oasis. It was lovely and green. So people have 
building their abodes surrounding what we call the central business district, <laughs> where all the sheds and um, the bore pumps and that are. So, yeah, over a dozen years ago, it got started and we've been building on the numbers. We do actually have a couple of spots left, uh, but we are looking for particular people. I know we can't be too fussy, but we do really looking for people that would like to live there and would like to work the land and would like to get involved in the um, the date farm itself, the actual farming, and preferably younger than the rest of us old coots who are now, you know, getting a bit decrepit. So if we want to continue, we do need to get some younger people involved. Though it's it's not an easy life. You do have to provide all of your own amenities and facilities, build your own place. If you become a member, you do get... Uh, water, which is the guarantee to everyone on on each block from the bore uh, for the domestic line, so everyone gets their tanks filled and can do what they want to do on their own places. And can I just yeah. ask about the actual location? Is there something special about that particular area, uh, or that yeah, land? Yes, there? Uh, it was earmarked. I guess sometime in the forties and fifties, or whenever they did extensive surveys all throughout the territory to discover where the good water was for particularly for uh, agriculture. And they identified a few places where there was considerable uh, good flow and good water quality, and one of them was down around our area. There was others at Tea Tree, Ali Karang, Adelaide River, Darwin, where they offered these types of uh, land packages where you get it as a leasehold, develop it, and then at a certain point when you can show you've planted everything and you've got your fences and bores and so on, they'll let you convert it to freehold. So we're the only ones there, though, out of 22 square kilometres earmarked for agriculture in that zone, uh, radiating out from where we are. No one else has ever taken up that one of those holdings. We're the only ones. So even though we draw a considerable amount of water, dates do require a lot of water. We don't feel that we'll ever deplete the, the aquifer because they had planned to be able to have 20 or so farms of similar size which never eventuated. I put that down to the fact that we have such a inclement, is it, <laughs> climate for growing certain things. So they have to be able to handle intense heat and quite cold, cold, as in minus temperatures. Which is dates. And dates can handle that. Pomegranates can handle that. Yeah, mulberries can handle that. Uh, figs. But grapes and so on. And even citrus. But really, you know, people say, why don't you grow citrus? It's like, yeah, you could, but they're pulling up thousands of acres in other parts of Australia because it's not viable. So, you know, we could grow them. We could grow all these things. But then figs, how do you get them to the market? Because you have to pick them quite close to ripeness. You notice they're $50 a kilo in the supermarkets when you do see them. Uh, you could probably dry them. So a lot of pomegranates could be a goer, but there aren't a lot of crops. You can't do mangoes. You can't do any of the tropical things like you can at tea tree. So I, I suspect that a lot of people took up holdings further north and they looked at this and thought, what can you really grow? Dates, and it's seven to ten years before you're getting a decent haul off of any particular palm. So it's a long time to wait and it's a long... You have to perhaps grow other things up until that point or concurrently or ease off or whatever when the, uh, um, up until you can the dates become productive and they're thorny and prickly and mm. there's a lot of things that... <laughs> A lot of reasons why not to. Them, yeah. <laughs> Do you make a profit ever from the date farm? It depends on the year. Um, the, the crop seems to be a little bit, well, it is definitely biennial in the sense that one year you get a really big crop and then the following year you get a 
quite a considerably smaller crop. I don't know if that's because the trees get exhausted or what it is exactly, because when they do bear in the, in the big years, there's lots. It could be 12 to 15 bunches on each tree. And you do have to sometimes thin them out, take whole bunches out. We definitely have to thin the flowers out uh, or the, the, the fruiting yeah. parts because you end up with gigantic bunches of tiny dates. Plus, if they're too big, you can get, especially if it rains in the summer, you can get, you know, fermentation and, and rot going on in the middle if they're... They need to be a bit open, so we yeah, do have to I've got cut so much sugar in quite them. a lot off of yeah. them. Yeah. So when the sugar comes out, then it encourages, and it's wet, like we've had the last three years. We've had quite wet summers. Uh, it does encourage moulds and fermentation and stuff. Rainfall events aren't great at the ripening stage when they're at the yellow stage, just before going brown. They're at their full size, and just like most uh, fruits and vegetables around the place, if you have a heavy rainfall event. And for, our, uh, for us, it's anything over 35 millimetres of rain in one rainfall. Uh, the fruit will split uh, and, therefore, and therefore then it becomes damaged. If it stays hot after that, those little splits can heal and you'll have a little, like, scar on the fruit. It's still edible. It's no longer a first. It's a second in quality. Um, but they can heal. But if you get continuous rain, like we had in the last three summers with the La, La Nina events, those cracks never heal and they end up, fermenting or getting this black mould in them and they're, they're absolutely no good. Mm. Can't even, not even good for a pig probably. They just go rotten basically. So last year was worse. We had 160 mil rainfall on the 2nd of February right at the middle of the ripening stage. Uh, that is in the, the yellow stage and we lost 80% of the crop. This year we probably lost only 50%. So, yeah, it's a, two big losses in a row. Uh, though El Nino is forecast uh, ahead of us, so very hot, very dry, uh, which is perfect, not for us humans, but for the dates. They <laughs> absolutely love the heat. So we're hoping for at least two to three years of El Nino so that we can get back to how they were when I first started there with the most immaculate fruit, I thought. I was shocked when we come to the La Nina events and we got scabby-looking dates and spotty things and moulds and splits and all these things I hadn't come across in the first three years. And where are you selling the dates to? Oh, we sell them all over Australia and some go overseas. Mostly the brown dates are all sold in Australia. Our costs are too high for us to export those and they can be grown so cheaply in other countries. So yeah. we don't export any brown dates. But uh, we do send uh, – there is one variety, the bahi or the honey date. Is that the hard one? It's it's no like – the, the thuri and the um, – Halawi and the uh, Zahidi are the harder dates. Yep. So you've got your soft dates, <clears throat> which are the Majuls and the Bahi and the Kadrawi. Then you've got your semi-hards, which are the Halawi, Zahidi, Deglet Noor. Deglet Noor. Yeah. And, and then you've got your really hard ones, which we've only got one variety. It's the Thuri. And interestingly enough, even though it's hard and like a hard nougat, it actually has the highest sugar content of all the yeah, dates. Yeah, I you think it's think so. Yeah, it's absolutely my favourite. Because it's, yeah. it's so hard and chewy. You would think the medjool. I mean, they're not far behind, mind you. Yeah. But the the um, the it's, bahi. I'll go back to the the bahi. When they're in the yellow stage, you can eat them in the yellow stage, and they're crunchy and juicy, slightly astringent but very popular, and those do get exported. So we send them to the central market in Sydney and there's an exporter there. Now, it's, an export licence is difficult to maintain and very costly, so it's not worth it for us to actually have an export licence, and we just then on sell 
to the central markets and then they will send them overseas to places like, I think, Qatar and UAE and there were six different countries. He did send me a list this year of where they sent them to. Uh, and this t- and because the crop was so late this past season, six weeks late in, in fact, that most of those dates went overseas. Uh, it was Ramadan at the time and so they fetched a really good price because of Ramadan. Now, Ramadan is actually still coming for us and we won't get that again this year because that's because our crop last season was six weeks late. It brought us into the time of Ramadan. And so we will expect that again in a few more years where if it goes back to the normal, we start picking the the Bahi in mid-February. This year we didn't, we didn't start till the end of March. So it was a good six weeks difference. And that's the only reason it's brought us prematurely into Ramadan. So this year, if it's back to normal, Ramadan is still quite a, a ways off from the yellow, the yellow ones because, of course, then they go brown. After yeah, that. so much outside your control. Yeah. Yeah. Which of those dates are best for cooking? Cook with all of them, really, but um, I guess the simplicity is in the soft dates because you, can, you don't need much cooking and they mush up pretty easily. The harder dates, you, you just got to cook a bit longer. They all have different flavours. Which is your favourite? Oh, look, I guess the bahi because it's – I don't like a lot of sugar, so it's smaller. And just the flavour is beautiful. My, I like them about a year old when they've gone quite almost hard and they're like a toffee. But I do have another favourite and it's uh, Bo, Bo Fergus, I think, is the variety. We're not sure about the bows. We've got three or four varieties that start with B-O-U, Bo. There's Bo Fergus, Bo Strami and a couple of others. I can't recall the names. Uh, but this one, it's a little long black day and it tastes like dried bananas. Oh. It is beautiful. That well, I would have to say it's my favourite, but we've only got one tree of that one. And we should mention that for, for locals that you can actually buy them. I mean, I, they're not available now, but I bought a box earlier this year. Yeah, we, we do the um, the medules as, as... Or a mixed... I've got a mixed box. Yeah, we do the yep. mixed boxes at the end of the season because we, we concentrate on picking the medule and the bahi at the beginning. Uh, and then towards the end we pick all the other varieties and then we make the mixed boxes. Yeah, I love the mixed boxes because you can really, yeah, you're never quite sure everyone. what you're going to get. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Do you do anything else with the dates other than, like, do you value add with the dates other than just selling Look, them whole? We, we long to do that, but we need to be able to afford a commercial kitchen to be able to do it all legally, of course. So it has to be clean, vermin-free and, and so on. We just don't have, you know, we've had a couple of bad seasons, so we're hoping to be able to have set a commercial kitchen up by now. But, look, there's so much potential there, even if it's simple things like uh, just um, yeah, date paste. Yeah. Can you tell me about the, the date paste or the bahini? Oh, the bahini. The bahini is uh, made from bahis, as the name implies, and tahini mixed together. So you cook it all up together and it makes the most beautiful sauce or something to pipe into the middle of, uh, you know, a, a medjool that you pulled the seed out along with a, 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 a pecan or some pistachio. Uh, dipped in, you know, dipped in uh, dark chocolate and maybe rolled in some coconut. There's so much you can do to the actual dates themselves. And you can make, like, what looks like a beautiful box of chocolates, what you might expect fancy chocolates, but it's all dates. They do that a lot in California where they have a lot of date farms along highways and little shops out the front. They get a lot of people because I don't know how many million people in California, but we don't quite have the population to maintain something like that and it's a lot of uh, labour to make them too so that's why the date paste would probably be a good starter because we do have to consider the cost of our um, um, uh, hourly wages when we make things as well. 
You know what, Kim? Just when we're getting on to dates and cooking, we're getting to the end of the show. It's very sad. <laughs> I think we've got another show there Two minutes. talking about dates and recipes I'm to come for in dates. Time. Yeah, or yeah. you come out and and we'll cook for you out. At yeah, the farm. that would be so so wonderful. Um, what's the favourite thing you do with dates? Mostly they're desserts. <laughs> so you can't go past a beautiful sticky date pudding. Of course, it's so easy to make, but we we put them into pikelets and. You know, other things like that make tagines sometimes. It's about the only sort of savoury yeah, dish. Yeah, it's hard to do a savoury dish. With yeah, it, yeah. Uh, and put it into couscous and things like that. So there's a lot of things you can do with it, but mostly it's desserts. Yeah, wonderful. I'm going to go and home drinks. and have. Some, <laughs> I'm going to go home and have some of my dates. I'm so glad I've got a whole box there, which I'm <laughs> gradually getting through. Kim Mackay, thank you so much for welcome, sharing Rita. your journey here to Alice Springs and the the date farm. Um, I think we've got another, definitely another show there. I can't wait to go out to the date farm and go into that and yeah, well, see the kitchen. Absolutely. <laughs> you, of course, have been listening to Kitchen Radio. That's a wrap for today's show. Uh, we're going to go out tonight with the Teskey Brothers. Um, it's from the album Half Mile Harvest, which I was thinking date harvest. Some type of a theme there but um and it's called pain and misery because i suppose there wasn't a link there but i suppose you know date palms can give you quite a little bit of pain and misery can't you (laughs) (laughs) okay don't forget to tune in uh next saturday for for eleanor hogan and the book chat and i'll be here again in the next fortnight with another episode of kitchen radio